Well, happy Father's Day. Uh, it is Father's Day, so I want to take a moment and ask uh, for all the fathers in the room to stand up right now. Would you do that, dads? All across the room, dads, stand up. Look at all this. Look at these guys. Man, that's great. It's awesome. Praise the Lord for all of you. Hey, man, that's a lot of dads in the room today. That's a lot, that's a lot of guys. You know, when I came 12 years ago, I, I thought one of my first impressions uh, was that you know, many churches have so many uh, women in leadership and who lead well and are spiritual. Uh, one of my first thoughts was, uh, how many men are in leadership here as well? And uh, how many strong, godly men? I really appreciate you being here today. Uh, the car show was a hit. I think we still have like two or 300 out there looking at the cars. And uh, the donuts were a hit. Uh, we have paramedics standing outside. Um, <laughs> All that can happen today, right? And um, we're just really glad that you're here today. You know, um, my message today is not about fathers per se, but I have to tell you that this was a sentimental Father's Day for me simply because uh, my dad passed away about a year, just a little over a year ago. It's not the first Father's Day since he passed away, but the second. And uh, I had a lot of thoughts about him this last week. And, and coincidentally, we had this car show and it reminded me of the very first car my father bought me. His, uh, his mode of operation was, I'm going to buy you an old car, you fix it up. But when he bought the car, I had no idea how old it would be. It was a 1950 Dodge four-door. Looked like a tank. I mean, it was as wide as a boat. I'm telling you, it was one of the uh, most ill-designed cars in history. Now, if you have a 1950 Dodge and you've restored that, my apologies in advance, but it was hideous in every way. And the reason he got it is because one of our friends in the church had this car. It had been sitting on his driveway forever, and he was wanting to get rid of it. My dad paid $50 for that car, <laughs> brought it home to me. And so I was 16, and I was all pumped about it, even though it was hideous. And uh, I took the back seat out and the front seat out completely so I could vacuum everything. It was really, really old. And um, so I found a dime in the back seat, underneath the seat. Now, I'd been a coin collector until I was about 12 years old, so I had a lot of coins. And I knew that dime was worth something. I had it appraised, and the dime was more valuable than the car I found it in. <laughs> That's what kind of car this was. I think I kept it three months before I sold it for $75, and I went on my, rat, my way of uh, uh, climbing the car ladder, if you will. <laughs> I started really, really bad. But um, one of my greatest memories of my dad was working on our cars together, even though he didn't have a mechanical bone in his body. Uh, he believed in restoring things, and so we would get something old. It's probably an economic thing. We, we believe in restoring old things because we can't afford new things. And, and so we did a lot of that kind of stuff together, and it really brought back a lot of memories to see these cars out here today. If you have your Bibles today, would you please take them and turn to Matthew chapter 22 and verse 35. We're going to be looking at the great commandment today. We've looked at this recently, but we're going to come back and look at this because we're re reaffirming and restating some of our vision statements and some of our uh, priorities as a church and as individuals. I also know that today there may be those of you who just, just came to Christ. We had a number of people come to Christ during crossover. Uh, 4,000 people came to Christ in Dallas-Fort Worth area, by the way, through crossover efforts uh, as Southern Baptist and as First Julius and other churches worked together. 4,000 people came to Christ. Uh, I think that's worthy of praising the Lord for. Amen. And a number of those came to faith in Harvest Crusades, a number through one-on-one uh, -on -one conversations. But we thought it was, would be good today to come back and restate some of our priority statements, some of our goals, what the Christian life is all about, 
and how we verbalize that. So please stand with me as we look at the subject of real relationships beginning in Matthew chapter 22, verse 35. And most of us know the context of this story. The lawyers and the Pharisees are coming, trying to entrap Jesus. And they ask a, a really critical question to those that were watching that day. But Jesus, as is his habit, takes the most devious of questions, the most uh, well thought out questions and crafts the statement that will be continuously repeated for thousands and thousands of years as he summarizes the Christian life in just a couple of statements. Verse 35, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. So the motive wasn't right. But Jesus, here's the question in verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. But Jesus goes further. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and prophets. We're going to look at this today as we talk about real relationships. Father, today in Jesus' name, give us wisdom and insight, the illumination of your Holy Spirit to see the whole picture of what you mean with these statements and how they apply to our lives, how we live, how we respond to others, but mostly how we respond to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Uh, God's people said, amen. amen. Please be seated if you would. Our most popular, best-selling, if you will, T-shirt of all time at First Eulis is Real People, Real Hope, Real Life. Say that with me. Real People, Real Hope, Real Life. Now, that's really easy for us to say, easy for us to grasp. We see it everywhere. The word real is important to us as well because not only is it a statement that, that uh, clarifies what we mean when we say these things, but it's also a strategy that we walk by. And we'll talk about those over the next few weeks. But, but real people, real hope, real life is, is, is part of us. The people part of that, real people, is simple. Real people simply means that we're just everyday, ordinary people of all kinds, of all walks of life, of all backgrounds, of all races, of all economic backgrounds and so forth. And we just come together as real, authentic people, not pretentious, not putting on airs, not hyper-religious. We just want a relationship with God and with other people. We're real people. It's really simple. We're real people who have real hope. Now that hope is centered on one person. And it happens to be the person who is being asked this trick question and they're testing Jesus. We find our hope in Jesus. These people were coming to trip Jesus up to test him, but, but Jesus demonstrates for us and for those that day why he is the hope that we all have. And then there's real life. What is real life? And we'll begin to define this over the course of the next few weeks. But let me just say this about real people who hope real life and the definition of real life is centered on relationships. It's centered on relationships. A number of years ago, about 35 years ago or so, I was at Southwestern Seminary and my professor of evangelism was a guy who was uh, big on relationships. His name was Dr. Oscar Thompson. And Dr. Oscar Thompson used to make this statement. I've said this a number of times. You've heard it said a number of times from this pulpit and that is relationship is the most important word in the English language. The idea behind that is you really don't receive anything in life and you can't really give anything in life apart from quality relationships. Love is an important word. The gospel is an amazingly important word. 
Salvation is a huge word. All those are, are meaningful, powerful words, but they all happen through relationship. Religion doesn't bring us those things. Those things don't come to us accidentally. Those things come to us. All the good things in life come to us through the quality relationship we have with God. In the same manner, negative things come to us through bad relationships. Some of us today grieve Father's Day, not for good reasons, but for bad ones. All of us have good relationships and bad relationships in life, but if you want real hope and real life, you're gonna find it through a real relationship with God Almighty. And real life for us means that we relate well with God, that's the vertical picture, and with others, that's the horizontal picture, right? So what Jesus is talking about in this great commandment is this vertical and horizontal relationship aspect of life. First of all, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And there's a precursor to that we'll look at in just a few moments because you can't really do that until you really know what the love of God for you is like. But once you know what the love of God for you is like, you can love God in the way of loving him vertically. And the more you love God vertically, the more it flavors the horizontal relationships that we have with other people. Have you experienced that? Have you experienced that quality relationship with God affecting and influencing and dramatically changing your exterior relationships, that is, those relationships with those around you? I used to do a lot of marital counseling or premarital counseling when I was a, a pastor uh, and the only pastor of a church. By that, I mean no staff members, nobody else to help no real counseling system. So they'd always come to the senior pastors to do premarital counseling. And I would always use the same illustration because it's an accurate and a good illustration. And that is when a man and a woman desire to be married, the greatest thing they can do is have a good relationship with God if this, if this area represents God. And as they move towards God, they move closer with each other. And when people had marital problems, then I would come back to that same illustration. Wherever you are on that tangent of relationships, the closer you get with God, the more you draw close to each other. I've experienced that for many, many years in, in my marriage, and I know that's true of all of us who have good relationships. The closer you get with God, the more dramatically it impacts relationships all around you. And those relationships make up a huge part of what real people, real hope, and real life are all about. So I have a statement here I want to give you, and that is this. Real life means to relate well with God and others. That's so simple. Real life means to relate well with God and with others. It's the R, if you will, of R-E-A-L. It's at the top of the cross. If you look at that R-E-A-L as points on the cross, at the very top of the cross is relating well with God, and that all folds into this great commandment that Jesus gives us, and we'll break it down in two ways. First of all, Jesus' commandment means that we are to relate well with God. Verse 37 again. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the precursor to that is this. The greatest and most important thing that you can know in life is that God loves you with an unconditional love that makes it possible for you to love him in the same way through Christ. One great theologian was asked the greatest truth that he knew. And the one that asked him the question supposed it would be some deep theological truth built into the sovereignty of God and some quote of a number of verses. But this great theologian responded, the greatest truth that I know is that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. 
I defy you to come up with a better statement of more import, more impact than the fact that Jesus Christ loves us unconditionally. It's just not, doesn't exist. This incredible love that we have from God allows us to know how to love God. So for us to relate well to Christ and well to God, we have to first know this important truth. And for most of us in this room today, if we relate well to God, all of us have come to this place. All of us have come to the place of realizing that God loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross. And we know John 3, 16, which says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's love from God's perspective poured out on us. Or the book of John, 1 John, where it says... This is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the payment for our sin. And when we come to the place of knowing that God loves us so much, so powerfully, so ceaselessly, so unconditionally, that he poured out his life to give us forgiveness and cleansing in Jesus Christ, and that love is expressed through Jesus, then we know the love of God, and only then can we respond by loving him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and all of our might. That's why Jesus said in, in this passage, that's why all the law, all of the prophets depend on that one thing, loving God well because of his love for us. So we've got this amazing statement that we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, and might, but we cannot do that without first coming to Jesus Christ and responding to his amazing love for us. If you've done that, there are certain things that begin to take place that allow you to love God well. Loving God well doesn't mean that we just feel love for God. Now, I feel love for God. I certainly, in my heart, in my emotion, feel dramatic and amazing love for God. But love for God is not just a feel kind of love, right? Because there are times that God does things unexplainable. There are times that God does not answer our questions the way he wants us to answer the question. Times when we are confused about what God is doing or why God has said this or why God has done that or why it's written this way instead of the way we would prefer it to be written in the Bible. There are times when we have to come to the place of having a trustful love of God which far succeeds and is superior to our emotional love for God. But we must love God well in a number of ways to be able to do this. And we can only do it through Jesus. Some time ago, I wrote a little pamphlet that we want to give away today to all who are new believers or all who are making fresh decisions to follow Jesus. It's called, Can We Walk? And in Can We Walk, in that brief booklet, I detail five things that we do as a result of being loved well by God. And I'm going to share those things with you, but I'd love to give you that book and a guest reception after our service today. But the heart of that is so that you would know what it means to experience the love of God and to love God well. Five things. Let me ask you to write these down. First of all, if you're going to love God well, first of all, you must experience God's love and forgiveness. Experience God's love and forgiveness. You know, one of the times when I, I, when I feel the greatest love for God is when I remember all the reasons that God shouldn't love me. All the reasons that God wouldn't normally love me. All the reasons that, humanly speaking, Others would not love me for it. When I think of God jumping over all that, willing to love me in spite of myself, in spite of my sin, in spite of my depravity and my mistakes and all of my willing sin as well, when God, when God loves me in spite of all that, and I realize I am super grateful for that. You ever experienced that? Looking back in life, at a period of life, or an act that you have done in life, and you look back and you go, man, I tell you, 
I know that's bad news. What I did, what I said, what I thought, bad news. God, that you love me in spite of that, that you forgive me in spite of that is amazing. And it's amazing to come running back to you because I know that your unconditional love for me will forgive me and cleanse me. The first thing you do is you experience God's love and forgiveness or you can't come to God at all. Nobody comes to God without that sin being dealt with. And as we come back to God time and time again, it's with confession and cleansing and asking God to remove us from all that. And we experience his personal nature in that. He personally gives the gift of eternal life. He personally forgives us of our sin, past sin, present sin, future sin. Somebody say amen because this covers it all. He personally calls you to a brand new life. He personally gives you all the treasures of heaven just because he loves us with an unconditional love. That lets us love God back in an amazing way. Well, I'm thankful for that. Thankful for the fact that we can experience God's love and forgiveness. One of my favorite stories that I, I share all the time, I don't know if I've shared it here more than once or not at all. I share it so often, I've lost track of who I've shared it with. So if I share it again, it's okay. It's worth hearing again. I'm on an airplane from Dallas-Fort Worth to San Francisco. And whenever I'm on an airplane or if I'm in an, an Uber ride or a taxi or wherever I am when I travel, you can bet on one thing. Number one, you can bet that at some point I'll fall asleep on the flight. Number two, you'll also bet at some point I'm going to try to share the gospel with you. So I'm on this flight, and as the people get on the flight, I'm looking at who's around me so I can think about sharing the gospel, and there gotta be people that are close to me. And so I'm sitting in the middle of a seat, three seats in that row in the middle there, and a little old lady comes and sits next to me, and uh, she gets into a romance novel really quickly, and, and I'm thinking at some point, in five hours, surely I can talk with her in some way. And then a young lady comes kind of running down uh, the, uh, the aisle there and then gets in the seat next to me. And this young lady is uh, very trendy, a lot of shades of purple in her hair, body piercings, a tackle box of piercings, I say, and then uh, tattoos all up and down her arms. And I'm thinking, she's probably not the one that's gonna wanna hear the gospel today, but this little old lady is. Besides, she's probably closer to death anyway, and I should probably start with her. <laughs> like it or not, that's how I reason sometimes. Now, if the plane gets in trouble, I'll huddle them both together. We'll share at the same time, right? But... So I started working on this little old lady and began to talk to her, and she, she has no interest in talking to me. She's in a romance novel, it's very important to her, and she dismisses me quick. And so I turn to the most unlikely person on the plane to accept Jesus, right? So I talked to this girl, began to share the gospel with her. She's got tattoos on her arm, and on her tattoo is the serenity prayer, the serenity prayer written in Spanish, and so I... Uh, I began to ask her if she believes in God. And we began to have this question and answer time and began to share the gospel with her. I talked to her for a few minutes, maybe 15 or 20 minutes about God. And as I began to center in on God and his love and his compassion for us and his forgiveness, I told her about, as you may know, the record book of sin illustration. And I showed how God took all of our sin and placed it on Jesus Christ. And when I told her that, she stopped me in the middle of my presentation, in the middle of my conversation. She said, stop, I want that. I want that. I loved it. I thought, you know, here I am thinking you wouldn't respond to this and I'm sharing it because I'm supposed to because I want you to hear and you stopped me in the middle of it. I literally said, let me finish the story and then we'll talk about it more. So I finished the story and invited her to put her faith and trust in Christ and she did. She said, I need to tell you a story. She sent me an email and in the email she said, I was at the end of my life. I'd been sent to Central America to get off of uh, drugs. I was addicted to prescription drugs. Uh, 
She said, I was about to lose my family, my, my car, my job, everything. And she said, when I got on the plane, I literally was thinking as I walked down the aisle, I literally was thinking, if I don't fill my life up with something, I'm going to go right back to where I was before. And you started talking about God, and all of a sudden, I knew what I need to fill my life up with. And it was the love of God and the forgiveness of God and a relationship with God Almighty. She goes, you need to see the other side of the story. That's why I stopped you and said, I want that. Do you remember the day that happened to you? The moment when you came to realize that there was a God and that God loved you passionately, so passionately that he was willing to let his own son die on the cross. Do you remember that moment where you woke up to that? You were all of a sudden awakened to the amazing love that God poured out for you and was making available to you. And you took those simple childlike steps of faith to say, yes, I want a relationship with this amazing God. I want my sins forgiven. You see, all that is what leads you to the place where you can say, I look at Almighty God and I do love Him with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind. Look at what He has first done for me. Every person who loves God well has come to that moment in their life and it becomes very personal because it's your sin, not just the sin of the whole world. It's your separation from God, not just everybody else's, it's you. The second thing we do is we take our next step with the Word of God, with the Word of God. A couple of weeks ago in our surprise series, we looked at a man named Enoch who walked with God. The Bible says Enoch walked with God and Enoch was not, for God took him. In fact, they walked such a close walk together and conversation together and interaction together that God became very personal to him. And there was an intimate relationship there. We looked at the life of Moses. The life of Moses is characterized by being a man who talked with God and God talked with him as a man who talked to his friend. And then we open the word of God and realize God still speaks today. He's there, he's not silent. He still speaks to us. He communicates with us. And when we don't know what to do or where to go or what to say or how to act, God speaks to us day in and day out. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Proverbs chapter uh, 3 and verses 5 and 6, which says, Trust not in your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your ways and lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways and he will make your pathways straight. What, a, what an invite to walk with God. What an invite to read the Word of God. What an invite to let God guide us and direct us in life. And if you're going to love God well, you're going to care about what He says to you and read it and put it in your heart. My wife and I have been married for 40 years. We celebrated that last week, and, and you in this room heard about that and celebrated as well. Thank you for that. You know, if my wife speaks to me, I listen. I try to listen. Not because of that old husband-wife joke that if you don't listen to your wife, you're in trouble, although that may apply sometimes but because I care about what she says. I wrote something on Facebook and one of my college friends wrote back and they said this. They said, it always amazed me that you couldn't hear other people, but when she spoke, as quiet as she is, when she spoke, you seemed to hear her. And I thought, well, that's because her voice really matters, right? When God speaks, that's the voice that really matters. When God writes the word of God, he's writing it to you. And you love God well by listening to God well. You love God well by digging into what he said to you. The Bible, all 66 books of the Bible are written supernaturally, not just to record history and, and, and theology and all the things that we know that they hold, but they're written personally to you. And God is speaking to you. And if you love him well, you love him well by listening to him, the one that loves you the most. 
So that's the one thing that we do. We experience God's love and forgiveness. Number two, we, we begin to listen to his word. Number three, we see change begin to happen. You begin to see that change happen because God speaks to you, molds your life. No one who has personally met Jesus continues life unchanged. As a matter of fact, if you're not changing, you're not walking with him because I guarantee you, you haven't arrived yet. Nobody in this room has arrived. Let's take a poll. Who has arrived? Would you raise your hand if you've arrived? If somebody is asleep and raised your hand, I'm sorry you raised your hand right now. Because <laughs> you have not arrived. And you will not have arrived until Jesus Christ comes back and supernaturally transforms you. So we're always in the process of becoming more like him, right? That's God's will. Always that you become more and more like Jesus Christ. And when you come to love God well, you're going to want to see change happen. Repentance and change are two words that describe the life of every single believer every single day. Number four, you realize you are the church. You are the church. You know, when I talk to people who have just come to faith in Christ and they say, do I have to go to church? My response is, you are the church. It's not a matter of going to the church. It's not a matter of going to some building where people gather. You are now the bride of Christ. You are now the church of Jesus Christ, the called out ones. I'm gonna put a family picture up here behind me today because a family picture uh, sometimes characterizes what it's like to get together with your family. And I remember having family get-togethers, family gatherings when I was a boy, and all our family members from both sides, both my mom's side and my dad's side, all got together. When I was three and four and five years old, it was all about the food. It was all about who I could play with while everybody was eating. But when I was 10 or 11, 12 years old, I got to looking around at everybody that said they were a part of our families, and I saw some really strange members of our family. <laughs> I mean, I was beginning to be kind of, you know, conscious of different people and how normal or abnormal they were. We had an unusual number of abnormal people, in my opinion. You know, everybody has a crazy uncle. Everybody has that weird person in the family that you really can't explain. How many of you have a person like that in your family? Would you raise your hand if you're bold and courageous enough to admit that, right? We have all kinds of people in the family. Guess what? We have all kinds of people in the family of God. All kinds of people in the family of God can you imagine it not being that way? Because reality is we come from every walk of life, every nation, tongue, and tribe. We're of all different kinds of backgrounds. There are all kinds of people in the family. And when we come together as a family, we are all part of the family. And it takes a lot to work together, to walk together, but it's what God designed for us to be. That helps us relate well to people outside as well. But we don't just get together to eat like you do at family get-togethers. It's not just about eating, it's also about working. The family of God, being part of the family of God is also about working. I was looking for a photo that I could show you that demonstrated families that work together. And the only thing I could really find was an Amish photo. That's an Amish picture. The men and women of this Amish group have eaten together and then they've gone out and they've constructed something together. It's really a work of beauty. Really what they do and how they build it is incredible. I'm not advocating that we become Amish. What I'm saying is look at the example of eating and then working together. Let me tell you something. When you become part of the family of God, you're part of an army. You're part of a team of people that serve 
that work, the hands and feet of Jesus. We are the ones that share the gospel. We're the ones that serve each other as well as those outside the walls of this church. I rejoice that we had 182 people serving and kids crazed last week. I rejoice that week by week we have people that are part of the family and they serve together as well as are nourished together. You become part of the family and you realize it. Then number five, you want to tell other people about Jesus. You want to tell other people about Jesus. Significant moments in your life are always announced. We announce it when we become engaged. We announce it when we have a wedding date. We announce it when we have a new child. We announce it when we move to another location. You know what we do when someone comes to faith in Jesus? We announce it by baptizing them in water. What you saw today was very unusual. A son baptized a dad. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that amazing? And we celebrate that. We rejoice in that. On July 22nd, we have an I Am Not Ashamed service. I think we have about 100, 125 people that have professed Christ and have yet to be baptized. We're going to celebrate in a big way that day. But you know what that is? When you are baptized, what you're saying is to everybody that's watching, I am now a child of God. I'm now forgiven. I now have a relationship with God. I'm now letting God change my life, turning it inside out. I am willing to be a part of those called the church and the bride of Jesus Christ. What a celebration. All those things are part of what we do when we love God well. I want to encourage you to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Now, Jesus could have stopped there, but didn't. And I'm going to introduce some things that I'll speak about next week and the week after. We're also to relate well with others. The scripture says here that the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's a Matthew account of the great commandment. The Luke account of the great commandment is in chapter 10. And in the Luke account of the great commandment, Jesus allows this conversation to move to the next level. Because when he says, love your neighbor as yourself, someone says, but who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story, you know what it is, of the good Samaritan. The parable of the Good Samaritan is amazingly detailed, even though the point is very clear. The point, if you read the end of the parable, is go thou and do likewise. Love people well, Jesus said. So here you have the first commandment, love God well. And then secondly, love others as yourself. And he answers with this parable of the Good Samaritan. It's not... First, love yourself, but first, love God, and out of that relationship, love others. So, what does that really mean? Well, I'm going to take a few lessons out of the Good Samaritan parable and remind us as a starting point that we'll pick up next week and the week after. Here's how we love others well. First of all, we love them compassionately, compassionately. If you want to jump over to Luke chapter 10, you'll see a couple of verses there that I'll point out about this part of this discourse. And in verse 33, not reading the whole parable, in verse 33 we have this statement, but a Samaritan, these are in the words of bread, Jesus is telling the story, a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him and when he saw them he felt compassion. Now I want you to circle that word for a moment. I want you to circle the word compassion. I want you to begin to drill down into that word for just a moment because this becomes an incredibly important word for us. You don't have to spell this, but in the Greek this is the word splagnizome. Don't spell that. Don't even try to spell that. It'll confuse you. Splagnizome is just the English rendering of it. I can't even remember how to spell it in the Greek, but that's what the word is. And it means to show pity, to have a heart moved with compassion. 
a heart that's poured out, that agonizes over people. In fact, the root word is agony. To feel what people are going through and to agonize with them. And in, in giving this parable and using this word, Jesus is demonstrating this is the opposite of what normally happens. What did the Levite do? He walked on the other side of the road and went on his way. What did the uh, priest do? He walked on the other side of the road, went on his way. What did the Samaritan do? Stopped and felt compassion. The capacity of this Samaritan superseded that of the religious elite. Though all the religion, all the law, all the prophets did not impact them, but the Samaritan felt compassion and Jesus punctuated it by saying, you go do that. Love God well, love God. Others well. And when you look at this and you understand the compassion that God has given us, you have to ask the question, how hard do we have to be to not feel someone that's hurting, maybe beaten, maybe desperately hungry? To be a follower of Christ, compassion rises up in us by the Holy Spirit. Only Jesus can do that in our hearts, but he does it well. When I was studying with Spiro Sodiades, uh, pastoring in Tennessee, I used to meet with him every Tuesday morning. We talked about the scripture before I actually preached the scripture so I'd be in a good spot with the scripture when I preached it. He was at the 8 o'clock service, sat on the first or second row, had his Greek New Testament open. Every time I preached, I knew I was being evaluated, right? And we would have a conversation between the 8 o'clock service and the 915 service to correct what I got wrong. So I, I got the idea if I don't go meet with him every Tuesday about the passage I'm about to preach, then I'll be in trouble every single week. And so I did that. Here's what he used to say about this word like nizome. He was, he was uh, overwhelmed with how clear and how powerful that word was describing the ministry and the life of Jesus. And it affected Spirosa's life in an amazing way. He started missions and orphanages in India that today feed 30,000 people on a daily basis and school them all, all because he was moved with compassion the way Jesus was moved with compassion. And his favorite verse to talk about was in the book of Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. If you have your Bibles, turn to that for just a moment. I hope our lives can be impacted the way they impacted his life. In Matthew 9, verse 36, Jesus is being described as what's going on with him. Seeing the people, he felt compassion. There's that word. He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Now, the word dispirited is another one of those amazing words. But what that word means is they are cast off as worthless. He felt compassion, for they were downcast and cast off as worthless, as having no value at all. And so he felt compassion for them and loved them. That's why Jesus loved the multitudes. That's why Jesus loved the individuals, because he saw them as sheep that needed a shepherd, and he saw them as being cast off. And how many times have you felt cast off in this world? How many people around you are actually cast off in that same way? We are to love compassionately. This command that Jesus gives us is parallel with this lie to love unconditionally, to love the agape kind of love, first God and then others. Secondly, we're to love selflessly. The Samaritan did not consider himself just the other, and he gave time and empathy and money for someone he didn't know. That's the reason these two conversations are connected. When we love and are loved by God, we have a sense of otherness. That's why I love to talk about dad sometimes. And that's why I love to talk about mom because you see this unconditional love 
that moms and dads have for their children. And that's why dads have such incredible influence with their children. When a dad who has a good relationship with God lives a life of compassion and lives a life selflessly, he gives a good image of who God is, a good picture of who God is. My dad did that for us. I'm thankful for that example. Let me just tell you today, my dad knew I needed love when I deserved it the least. And he gave it. He believed in me. He believed in my brother at times when our lives weren't very believable. If you don't have an earthly dad that's done that, let me just tell you about your heavenly father. He's a good, good father who loves you passionately. No dad can mirror that perfectly. You're fortunate if you have a dad that's mirrored it imperfectly. But that love itself is selfless love. And then thirdly, this Samaritan's love is love that is inclusive. We're to love inclusively. Jesus sets the story up so well. Uh, I want you to follow me through the end of this. I know we're a little long today, but the word is important. Besides, David Platt preached last week, and we were here till 1230, right? So <laughs> some of you think of that. That's no excuse, Pastor. We love to inclusively. Don't miss this. Jesus sets the story up so well. The priest and the Levite were members of the religious elite and wouldn't let their love include a poor, beaten, unnamed individual. But the Samaritan knew no such boundaries. When we love God and we love others, we love with the same unboundaried love. That's why everybody, whoever they are, wherever they're from, are welcome to come worship with us here at First Eulis. And you want to invite them no matter who they are. That's why when we minister to someone through Compassion Ministries, Six Stones, or Kids Beach Club, or having conversations through Can We Talk, or, or our daily conversations at work, or in the schools, or the neighborhoods, wherever they are, uh, we don't discriminate from person to person. Whoever wants to hear this message of love, we're going to share it with anybody, anytime, place, because we believe our goal is to shine the love and show the love of God to everybody, inclusively. That's a given. If he loved us, he loves everybody. When we love God, we love others with the same love. I think one of the biggest examples that my dad showed me was loving people. He was a pastor. as I was supposed to, but there were times that I saw him love when nobody else saw. There was a guy in our town named Carl. Uh, our town was a, a white Oklahoma town. And there were a few black families in our town, but not a lot. There was a guy whose name was Carl. Carl was really tall. He was really tall, like 6'6 six, six or something like that. And when I was a little boy, I was afraid of Carl because Carl was kind of angry, kind of upset about things in life. He had a rough life, left back around. He walked everywhere in town. And, uh, and you know, in a town, you know, he, he was tough. He wasn't. Carl was tough. You wouldn't want to mess with Carl. I remember one day I was walking home from school and I saw Carl on my front porch talking to my dad. Now, in that little town, if it wasn't in the dead of summer, front porch is your living room, right? You sit on the front porch and you talk. Carl was sitting with my dad on the front porch talking. And here's how afraid I was. I just kept walking. I didn't even go home. I just kept walking. <laughs> I thought, I don't know what this conversation's about, but I don't want to be any part of it. I'm afraid of that guy. I came back later. And I said, Dad, what we talked to Carl about? He said, Carl's an angry young man. He's had it really hard. He said, nobody will listen to him. He said, I spent the last hour listening to Carl unpack just his, his pain, his heartbreak. He wants to blow up the city, so to speak. But man, God loves him. God loves him. God's got a great plan for his life. He said, just pray for Carl. That's all he would say. 
So I didn't hear from Carl for another 40 years. I found him on Facebook last year. He is a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wow. Wow. I don't pretend to know what happened between my dad's conversation and where he is today, but my dad and his love for Carl had something to do with it. And maybe a lot of others along the road demonstrate love, compassion, told the story of Jesus Christ. But when you see Carl, you don't see anger, you don't see hatred, you don't see a chip on his shoulder. When you see Carl, you see the love of Jesus Christ. You know, that's why we are to love indiscriminately. God's love can overcome anything. I've seen it. God's love can overcome anything. That's why we tell everyone that Jesus Christ loves us well. Love God, love others. And we have a world that needs this so badly. Wow. So much hatred. So much pain. Love God well. Love others well. Relate well to God first. And then relate well to others. Real people, real hope, real life matters. It matters that you live this out. Now this is not the end of our service, but this is an invitation time. We're going to conclude in just a couple of minutes. But I'm going to ask you to stand right now. Don't leave, just stand. I'm going to ask our counselors to come to the front. This is a very quiet invitation. I'm going to ask that you bow your head and close your eyes. And for the next couple of minutes before we close, I'm going to ask you to come and respond to the love of God. And maybe today God is speaking to you about how much he loves you and how you need to respond to him. I, I have people at the front that can't wait to talk to you about that. They can't wait to love you, to hug you, to talk to you, to pray with you. So with heads bowed, eyes closed across the room right now. Just give us a few moments for those who would like to walk forward and respond to do that right now. The piano's playing. I'm going to grow silent for just a moment. But I want you to make your way in now to make this decision wherever you are. Would you come and respond to the unboundaried love of Christ so that you can know him and love him? Even if nobody else comes, you should come. Because I doubt that there's a person in the room that hasn't been in the place of not feeling loved, not realizing they're loved. And everybody before you leave today ought to be a person that knows they are loved by Jesus. Maybe you've made a decision this week. Maybe you walked down from the upper stands in the AT&T Stadium to walk down to the floor of the stadium. And now you're here today because you were told to be a part of the church. You were invited here. Come tell us about that. Talk to us about that. Just come. This family is waiting to meet you. Thank you, Father, that you love us today. Thank you so much that you've given your son Jesus for us. What a joy it is to talk about this. 
What a joy it is to celebrate it, to experience it, God. Thank you for everyone in the room that has. And for those that haven't, an invite stands. It will help them to respond to you, the love of a good, good, amazing Father and Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name.